the Lord's word. Thank you. And before we get started on that, um, I did want to share with you one other piece of news from our uh, family this week. Um, the uh, the congregation family, I mean, here. If you notice, Linda's not here this morning on the keyboard. Um, Linda's dad passed away on Friday, and uh, so she's been, uh, you know, dealing with that um, health issues had and now he's passed away so I encourage you as well reach out to Linda show her your love um, let her know that we're here for her okay and let's pray for a moment for Linda and her family Lord thank you for uh, Linda's gift to our church and her service and her smile and her her gentle spirit and Lord as she's mourning and grieving at this time and her family as well for her father I pray Lord that you would comfort them and be a light to them as well, Lord. If there's anyone in the family, Lord, that needs your touch, I pray that you would give it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, you ready to hear some preaching? Okay. We'll see about this. Okay, I'm going to, we're trying something a little different this morning, so uh, we'll see if this works. I should be able to change the slides now from here. <laughs> okay. So, um, we're continuing through the book of Colossians, and uh, we're more than halfway through, so that's good, and uh, looking forward to uh, continuing to study this passage uh, this morning, as well as the book as a whole, Um, and uh, I've been gleaning a lot out of it personally, and I hope you are as well. So this morning, uh, we're going to be looking at chapter 3, verses 18, through chapter 4, verse 1. This is one of those examples I mentioned before, you know, the, the, um, the verses and everything in the Bible weren't put in until about 1,500 years later after the Bible was complete, um, and sometimes uh, there's a chapter break that breaks up a thought, so this is one of those examples, but we'll look at that in a bit. But we're going to look at um, relationships this morning, uh, particularly in the Christian household, husbands and wives, children and parents, servants and masters. To give us the context, I'm going to go back a little further to some of what we looked at last week so we can uh, look at this together, and uh, and we will um, read from chapter 3, verse 12 through 4.1. And it says, um, one moment here, I guess I'm not controlling it, Josiah, so that's all right, you go ahead. Um, So from Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 1. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, 
for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants fairly, justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So, again, we look at a passage here that talks about relationships, um, and I've kind of put them into three categories, but there's a much broader implication here. Really, it, it's talking about all of our relationships. There's something we can glean from this that covers really every relationship we have, um, but Primarily, he's talking to husbands and wives, children and parents, servants and masters. So let's go back to that first verse. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Paul writes something similar in in Ephesians chapter 5. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, this is a passage that many people would just rather ignore. But we can't do that because it's part of Scripture. And so we have to look at it. We have to see what we can learn from it. Many people have had issue and angst with many parts of this passage. And it's no wonder For many women, this passage represents oppression, the patriarchy, a man's world. And for many men, some have weaponized this passage to force women into submission, to wrongfully force their wives not only to be submissive, but to treat them as property. And sadly, that's to ignore the next verses. Now, I mentioned just the verse to wives because it comes first in the passage, But to point out the potential powder keg we have here uh, as we teach this passage. Our world doesn't like it. Our world doesn't accept it. People will walk out of churches that preach the truth. And this passage is no exception. But the reaction to this passage, the refusal by some women to consider it, the weaponization by men, reveal what the Bible teaches us in many places. And that is that mankind is sinful. So we don't look at it the right way. And if we refuse to bend the knee to God in this case and others, where we, not, we don't like the way it's said or the lessons that we're supposed to learn, and then all that says is we're going with the nature we were born with, the sin nature that's inherited from Adam. And that distorts our understanding of beauty. And it makes something beautiful into something ugly. Paul's not singling out women here to get them straight so he can move on. Rather, he's teaching women, men, and children, and single people together. And the overarching point is not just to women or just to men, but, uh, or even just to children or slaves. It's directed and with the intention of helping Christians to understand their responsibility to live together in community. And the first place of community for most people is in the home. That's why the emphasis is given. 
And so let's take a look at Paul's instruction to husbands and wives together because to simply focus on the wife and then separate it out, that has the potential to divide our attention from the community aspect of this to the individual aspect. So let's look at them again, but let's look at the verses that include the husbands as well. So first, we go to Colossians three eighteen and 19. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. The parallel passage of sorts in Ephesians says this. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Now, when we look at it in that full context, we see that there's more said to the husband than the wife, isn't there? Now, we can see, as we look at both passages together, a more full understanding than if we just pulled one out by itself, which would be a violation of what Paul is trying to do here. By the way, at my previous church, over seven years ago, I preached through Ephesians. And I preached through this passage, and I wasn't stoned. So let's keep that streak going, okay? Now, I want to talk a little more about how our sin nature gets in our way of understanding this passage. You see, for either husband or wife, the thing that gets in the way of our living out this, these commands that Paul's giving... What gets in our way is pride, selfishness, a need for control. And depending on your perspective, you could say, well, the problem is women who aren't submitted to their husbands. And on the other hand, someone may say, the problem is men who don't love their wives like Christ loves the church. But it shouldn't surprise us that both of those things are true. Both of them. After Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis 3, we find the consequences of that sin God cursed the serpent, and also he cursed mankind, and specifically to the woman, he said this in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now, we can conclude partly from this that Women, as being as part of the curse for the fall, find themselves being in resistance to being led by their husbands. Now, some theologians reject that that's the point there. But regardless of how we take uh, Genesis 3.16, it's clear throughout all of Scripture that as a result of the fall, all of humankind, both men and women, in their natural state, are opposed to God. Resisting his will, resisting his laws, it's the sin nature, okay? So if God commands that wives be submitted in reverence to their husbands, there's an inclination to resist this, 
And for husbands who are told that they should have such a love and care for their wives as to value them and consider them as they consider their own bodies, that they should love their wives in the same way that Christ loves the church, well, men will resist that instruction as well. And clearly, even Christian husbands and Christian wives have the temptation of pride. And so Paul finds it necessary to include in his teachings the necessity for believers to constantly be on guard for the temptations of the flesh, as well as to provide positive encouragement for us to all do better. Now, I want to take a moment to talk about what is not meant by Paul. Okay, It's important to talk about what's not meant, because this is one of those many twisted verses that people use, and sometimes even to abuse. Okay, He does not mean that a wife is property of the husband, and she has to obey him with a slave-like obedience. He does not mean that the, lower, the wife is lower class or lower value or status before God. And certainly she should not consider herself, nor her husband should treat her as though she's less valuable or less important. It does not mean that the wife is a sex slave that has to be ready for whatever her husband wants, whenever he wants, whether she's comfortable or not with it. It does not mean that the husband can make all the decisions without regard to his wife's feelings, her values, or her preferences. In fact, it's quite the opposite. If he loves her like Christ loves the church, then he would never consider acting like that. If the husband wants to to be Lord over his wife, let him be like the Lord Christ, who, as Paul points out, gave himself up for his bride, the church, and works to sanctify the church through the word. Here's something else Paul is not saying. When he says the husband is to love his wife, he's not talking about infatuation love. He's not talking about erotic love. He's talking about cherishing, having affection for, proving one's love. He says, don't be harsh with your wives. In the New Bible Commentary, uh, it says, rather he rather it involves his unceasing care and loving service for her entire well-being. Christ-like, sacrificial leadership by the husband will keep the ultimate good of his wife in view at all times. And so I'll ask you to consider this. Wives, would you find it easier to submit to your husband if he loved you more like Christ loved the church? And husbands, would you find it easier to love your wife as Christ loved the church if your wife were submitted, not that you're Lord over her, but that you would take the role of one who loves and cherishes and protects her? But what happens so many times? The sin nature gets in the way. If you could see what happens all the time in marriage counseling, or maybe you have even said something like this, well, the wife might say, I will never submit to him as long as he doesn't take responsibility. Or I won't submit to him until he shows me he really loves me. Or I refuse to listen to a man who can't get his life straight, and so on. Likewise, a husband will say, well, if she doesn't respect me, I, if she would respect me, I would be able to show her that kind of love. Or if she wouldn't try to be in charge all the time, then I would be more gentle. And so on. The sin nature gets in the way. The man wants his own way. His pride keeps him from seeing things through her eyes. And her desire is contrary to her husband. Sin, sin, sin. That's the problem. But Paul isn't writing to people without hope. He's he's not writing to people who are incapable of changing. 
He's writing to the church. He's writing to people who have hope, who want to live for Christ, who want to get it right. People who still battle the sin nature, but ultimately have victory over that sin nature. Paul is writing to those in Christ. So Paul isn't writing to wives who will never submit. He's not writing to husbands who won't love like Christ did. He's writing to people who have been radically changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel that is preached without shame because it is the power of God to salvation for all who believe. The people Paul is writing to are true believers who no longer walk in the flesh but according to the Spirit of God, the Spirit that invaded their lives to quicken them to believe with saving faith, the same Spirit that works in them to empower them to live a holy life, and the same Spirit lives inside the believer the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. That's who Paul's writing to. He's not writing to people who will never be able to pull this one off. Okay? So let's not adopt what the world would say about these verses. Let's not give into the lie that this is misogyny, that this is oppression of women, that this is uh, the patriarchy at its worst. Instead, let us hold up marriage to see it as it is supposed to be, a sacred institution ordained by God. In the Preacher's Commentary series, it says, where the family is the center of caring, the wife may be asked to be submissive to her husband, but submissive to his love, not his tyranny. A father has authority over his children, but it must be an authority that is trusted, thus authoritative, not authoritarian. The husband father is to set the pattern of caring, loving just as Jesus loved. So again, we have those three categories, the husbands and wives, children and parents, servant and masters. And I move forward into the children and parents, where Paul writes, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. And the, the similar passage in Ephesians chapter 6, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, if you started out with this passage with the idea that husbands and fathers haven't made, that they're the ones the wives submit to, that children have to obey, and if they have employees or in Paul's day slaves, that they were the boss as well there, well, consider this. With authority comes responsibility. And men are called by Scripture to a very high standard. So if you are a husband and father and want to use this passage to your advantage, to lord it over your household, I called on you to use the whole passage. Both here in Colossians and in Ephesians. And by the way, if I was ever to find out that a man in this church was abusing this passage and abusing his wife through this passage, I can guarantee you there would be consequences in this church. We will have church discipline. You are commanded not by the church to treat your, life this way, your wife this way. You're commanded by Paul, who's speaking on authority from God himself. Children, obeying your parents is required of you by God. However, there are limits. Children are not called to obey their parents if the parents ask them to sin. Okay, let's put that to bed right now. There's people that have argued that point. I remember being in a study once and people were arguing, well, how do you honor your parents, though, if you don't obey them? Well, you're not really bringing honor to your parents if you obey them to sin. 
And parents do not have the authority to boss their adult children around. Well, that got a response. I wasn't sure if that would. I'm serious. <laughs> I knew a guy that was himself retirement age and still allowed his 90-year-old father to boss him around. I'm serious. You might have seen this. Frankly, that's sick. It's sick. It's a lifetime of abuse. When your kids are adults, you may give them advice. Probably best to let them ask for it first. But you don't get to make life decisions for them. Fathers are not to provoke their children. Now, that's something easy for us dads to do, isn't it? Because we know how to push our kids' buttons. We know how to get their goat, don't we? I know just what I could say to get their irritation up. It's easy for fathers to tease or to embarrass their kids. And I love to tease, and I have to be careful here myself. When the kids are starting to get annoyed with us and we keep going, we're not obeying this scripture. I'm not talking about discipline and proper instruction for kids. We don't stop requiring chores of them because they're frustrated by them. Okay, But if we are needling them or constantly putting them down for having a difference for them, then we need to fix our behavior too. Just as we must be husbands to our wives with Christ as our example, we must treat our children as Christ would as well. And we see what an example, this is a quote we have, what an example we have set before us in the Lord Jesus Christ. I think this is Spurgeon's quote. Jesus is the divine example of love and self-denial, and as, he, as we hope to be saved by him, we must diligently copy him. He is now exalted to the highest glory as the reward of his voluntary humiliation, and by the same means must his disciples rise to honor We must stoop to conquer. He who is willing to be nothing shall be possessor of all things. So if Christ is our example, would Christ provoke his children to discouragement? No, and neither should we. The relationship between children and parents, much like that of husband and wife, takes effort, constant vigilance. And we'll move on then to the last section of servants and masters. This section has found its controversy as well. Some of your translations will say servants, some will say bond servants, some will say slaves. So here's something we need to understand because passages like this are sometimes used to attack Christianity. So let's look at the verse again, the, the last few verses. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord, Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So some people have taken passages like this in Scripture and said, well, Paul is endorsing slavery. They'll say the Bible talks about being good slaves, so the Bible must be pro-slavery. In history, verses like this have been distorted to justify chattel slavery, which is the buying and selling of human beings as property. But the Bible never endorses that practice. Paul was writing to a society in which as many as one out of three people were slaves. He's not saying it's okay. But the early church included slaves and also masters. 
Sometimes slaves had made themselves slaves. Now, when you say, oh, that doesn't make sense. But let me explain. To pay off a debt, rather than be imprisoned, one may say to the one that they owe the money, I'll be your bond servant until I have paid it off. So some people were actually slaves by choice rather than the alternative of going to prison or something like that. Many slaves were severely mistreated. Some were treated well. But Paul's not trying to make a social comment here on the good of slavery. He's telling Christians what it means to live for Christ in whatever context they're in. He also tells masters to treat their servants justly and fairly. But some people have asked a good question, and I think it is a good question. Why doesn't Paul just command the masters to free the slaves? Well, we know he did, at least in one case. If you look at the short book of Philemon, which is only one page, you can read it quickly. Um, but he, runs, he writes to this friend of his, Philemon, who had, his slave had run away. Onesimus was the name of the slave. And he appealed to Philemon to take back Onesimus, quote, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant as a beloved brother. So Paul did make a personal appeal in this case, at least, for one bondservant. People say, then why didn't he do so in all his letters and just command all Christians everywhere to release their bondservants from their obligations? Well, Paul's first concern was not social reconstructing. Paul's concern was the spiritual state of people more than their physical conditions. That doesn't mean he didn't care about those in servitude. That was just not his main mission. But the church as a whole has done more in an attempt to reorder society for the betterment of all than any other institution in history. But slavery has always existed. And before Jesus set up his church, it was far worse. But again, Paul was not focused on ending slavery. He was focused on preaching the gospel, which sets people free from the bondage of sin and makes them slaves to righteousness. Perhaps Paul knew that if he were to go around telling slaves to leave their masters or tell masters they must release their slaves, then he would have greatly hindered the church and brought even more persecution to believers during that time. Because whenever we upset the social order, and sometimes we need to do that, but we become a target. Perhaps Paul decided that wasn't the time to fight the slavery battle. I don't know what Paul was thinking. Whatever he was thinking, he cannot be accused of having endorsed slavery. He never did so. But he does acknowledge how common it is in the world at the time he wrote this letter. Now, we're in a context where slavery is illegal, but unfortunately it's not ended. Um, we're faced with, though, the challenge of how do we apply this to ourselves. So we have to say, okay, I can't apply it directly because I don't own a slave and I'm not uh, a slave myself. But is there a principle we can draw from this? And I think there is. I'm going to get to that in a moment. Before I do, though, I want to mention that slavery is not gone. In fact, according to the Global Slavery Index, there are about 40.3 million slaves in the world today. Countries like North Korea, Iran, Cambodia, and others still have many people in slavery. Even where it's illegal, it's, it can be underground and out of the view of the authorities. And many conditions of forced labor where public officials will turn a blind eye or they'll bribe or whatever else. But you may say to yourself, well, yeah, that's the less developed countries. Well, you may be shocked then that there's an estimated 
58,000 slaves in the United States today. 58,000. That's more people that live in my hometown. Sex slavery. The exploitation of legal, illegal immigrants. Slavery still exists. It may not be in chains and, and all of that, but it still exists. I may say as well, in communist countries it sure exists. We should be concerned for people in slavery. It's offensive to God. And I realize in our congregation, as far as I know, there's no slaves or slave owners here. So how can we apply the passage? That's the question. What can we learn from what Paul is writing about here? Well, since he was writing uh, to many people who would have been slaves, because they were, there were many in the early church, some of them were bond servants working to pay off a debt. Some were just regular slaves that were sold into slavery or born into slavery. Um, when, when I look at it to, to apply to us, I have to say, how does, how do, what does this work out for us today? I think it makes sense that we apply this to people today who are working for a wage and to those who hire them. Uh, the key really is that we can apply verses 23 and 24 to anyone. It says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So there's two imperatives in that. Work heartily and serve. You are serving the Lord Christ. And if we go back to the last verse of last week's passage that we went through, remember, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. In 1 Corinthians seven twenty-one to 24, Paul writes, too, about what are Christians to do now they found themselves being a Christian. Um, and so he writes this, Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man in the Lord. You know what he's saying there? He's saying you might be a slave to men, but you're free because you're in Christ. Remember that. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So he's saying to the other ones who are not yet bondservants, don't sell yourself into bondservant. You know, don't make yourself a slave. But then he says, so brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him, there let him remain with God. So all believers need to understand themselves to be servants or slaves of Christ. And when we consider this, we must do everything in word or in deed in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now there's something to remember for this whole passage I've just covered, and I've gone through it very quickly uh, the, the husbands and wives, children and parents, now the slaves and their masters. One key thing to know, and we don't always see in our English grammar, Paul wrote this in Greek originally, um, that what he's getting at is not some kind of compulsion, but willing service. You see, back in verse 18, the wives, when they're told to submit, the grammar that Paul used in the original language indicates a voluntary act of wives to be in service and submission to their husband. And the husbands are to love and not be harsh voluntarily. Children are to obey voluntarily. Servants are to voluntarily serve as though they're serving the Lord. And masters are to voluntarily be kind and just and fair. All of us all Christians, regardless of what particular relationships we find ourselves in, 
whether in marriage or in family or at work or in the church, all of us are to be voluntarily submitted one to another out of reverence for Christ. And he is our primary example for this. So if an employer has a Christian employee, even if the employer is not a believer, will probably rejoice at his good fortune to have a Christian working for him because the Christian works in this way as working unto the Lord. And likewise, an employee who works for a Christian should consider that to be a wonderful thing because the Christian employer is not like those in the world who exploit and abuse employers. At least they ought not to be. And this is why you often find great loyalty among employees of businesses that conduct themselves with Christian values guiding them. You'll find their employees are happy to be there and will support their company. I want to go through um, very quickly Philippians chapter 2, 1 through 11 to kind of center us back to the purpose of all of this. And Paul writes there, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. That's what the men are supposed to do for their wives, by the way. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, this is talking about Jesus again, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we've been given instruction in church this morning how to apply that in these relationships, these family relationships, husbands and wives, children and parents, servants and masters, and the application really is every relationship you have should be thought of this way. We're called as believers to live this way. Some benefits of that will include showing the world how good relationships can be done. We'll have more peace with our marriages and with our families. But more importantly, when we obey Jesus, we glorify Jesus. And so we want to be obedient to him. And as I close here, I challenge you to learn what the Bible says about how to live this life. And one way I've mentioned the last few weeks, but since it's actually going to start next week, I want to make one more mention and We'll probably send an email out as a reminder or probably Faith Life as well. Um, But next Sunday, starting at 7 p.m., at the same time that the youth meet next door, we're going to have a course in here that I'm going to be teaching. Um, I'm calling it Foundations of Faith, and it's going to be a series. The first series is going to be just 10 weeks on the Bible. The authority of the Bible, general revelation, inerrancy, um, all of those things, what what the Bible uh, is, why it's so important to us. And I hope that you'll come because 
I've, I, my prayer is that everyone who comes will have a more stronger confidence in what the Bible says, a stronger confidence in the authority of the Bible and its truthfulness, and uh, I think you'll benefit from that as well. And if you want to invite others to it, then I think you should do that too, because a lot of people, even in their churches, are languishing with lack of good teaching, so you could bring a friend along if they need some extra meat in their life as Christians. So um, it'll also be recorded just like our sermons are on Faith Life, and so you can watch later on if you need to as well. Um, but I'd rather have you come and be here in person. I think it's going to be really fun to be together. So, uh, so come join us. That'll be next week. We'll do 10 weeks on just the Bible, and then we'll take a break probably because it'll be the holidays, and we'll come back with the next tr- topic, which will probably be the Trinity. So, um, so looking forward to that. Let's uh, just recenter back and pray and ask the Lord to help us apply this verse, these passages in our lives. Um, of, of how we can live with our families and with others. Lord, thank you for your word and your kindness to give us these instructions. I pray, Lord, that if, if we're looking through a lens that's dirtied by our flesh, that you would help us to clean that off, that we would be able to see it through your, the lens of your word, the lens of righteousness, Lord, that we could apply this and see the beauty in it, instead of the ugly thing that many people have made it. Help us to be a true and shining example of your word and its truth in our world, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't we stand and sing together?